0: I'm a Black woman, you know, and I'm being called a white supremacist. I've never seen teachers calling each other names like that. The broader system is just being destroyed and dismantled right before our eyes, and we're complicit in that because we're not saying anything.
1: In 2021, Dr. Tabia Lee was hired to direct the Anza College's Office of Equity, Social Justice, and multicultural education, and to reduce the wokeness of the institution.
0: I just went beyond the smaller bubble to the larger community and said, who wants to work on actual inclusion and and doing some things we've never done here before?
1: But after two years, Dr. Lee was terminated for her heterodox perspectives and inquiry-based approach to DEI.
0: I've lost everything, and that's tough. But what I've gained is so many people coming and saying, thank you. And to me, that's worth everything. Because that's what it's going to take to take our nation back.
1: This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377 that's 855-862-3377 or text American to 65532. Again that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Tabia Lee, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. So, Tabia, I was really fascinated to read your article in Compact magazine. Um, kind of an incredible adventure you've had coming in as the DEI educator at De Anza College it turned out that you had a very different approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion than was the the default approach. Um, So tell me about what happened. Tell me, who is Tabia Lee?
0: Well, thank you for the opportunity, Jan. Um, I just want to share with you uh, that I am a lifelong educator. And I really mean lifelong educator. I was part of a gifted and talented program when I was in elementary school and uh, the teachers didn't quite know what to do with us. And so we spent a lot of time like playing Oregon Trail and being used as peer tutors. So that's when my commitment to teaching really began. Um, But during that time in my childhood, not everybody was so kind. And so I had experience um, with the very same people I was helping actually teasing and bullying me. And so it was at that early age that I had this commitment to the outsider, the outcast, the person who's misunderstood, Um, and that followed me throughout my teaching career and my adult lifehood. Got my formal education and became a teacher. I taught in East Los Angeles Public Middle Schools for a decade, um, teaching um, English, civics, and social studies with gifted English language learners, and uh, at that time, Uh, that was something that in California we had an English only uh, through the law, the, the only language of instruction could be English and some of the teachers thought that you couldn't possibly be gifted if you didn't have English language proficiency so I was breaking down those misconceptions, even with my colleagues in Los Angeles Unified School District, doing teacher trainings around you know, giftedness as neurodiversity. Um, so in, in early times, uh, doing technology trainings for teachers, in addition to my teaching responsibilities. So I've always served in this role of teacher support as well as actual practitioner. Um, and it's always, I've always had to do that kind of meta thinking, meta thought about those, um, those topics, um, how to step outside of the pedagogy and unpack it for people. So this has been something that has been part of my life work, um, a commitment to um, elevating uh, different groups who may be on the margins, um, a commitment to inclusion of everyone in a space. So that's what led me, you know, to eventually this uh, position, this tenure track position at uh, De Anza College, uh, where I was, um, after a very rigorous um, interview process, selected to be their faculty director for the Office of Equity, Social Justice, and Multicultural Education. This is a faculty role. Um, Even though my uh, doctorate is in educational leadership and administration, I've always been a lead from the trenches kind of person, so um, I've always been a teacher leader and a co-learner and uh, someone who is uh, very committed to not just making myself a better teacher, but sharing the things and the tools and the resources I have found with other teachers so that they can be their best possible teaching selves is what I call it.
1: So how is your DEI approach different from the conventional one or the one that seems to dominate today?
0: So DEI today, there's definitely a default perspective at work. I would say um, it's something that I didn't know going into you know the work that I did at De Anza College, um, but I discovered it. You know, as you go into an environment and you start to realize, you know, I'm a little bit different um, than what other folks are saying, and my perspective is a little bit different. And I started to try to figure out what was, what were the differences, uh, where were they um, philosophically, pedagogically. And um, I started to just really reflect on that because I wanted to understand why I seemed to be so different than the people that were um, making the decisions around my tenure uh, position there. So,
1: okay, so let's dig in. You were actually specifically hired, from what I recall, right? The, the administration was worried that things had gotten too woke, right? So, you were actually invited to come to try to deal with that. So they were actually hiring someone who thought differently. They they knew that ahead of time. I want to touch on that, but it just strikes me that a number of our viewers have actually been asking me, how do you even define woke? And we've done this in a number of shows with a number of guests on American Thought Leaders. But I actually I I saw one that you came up with. Why don't you tell me what is what is woke? How how do you define it?
0: I think it's something that's very contextual. Um, So that's why whenever anyone uses that term, I ask them, you know, please define what you mean. So the working definition at De Anza, when I was applying there as a candidate, um, when they said, your office is a little too woke and we'd be looking for someone you know, to kind of rein that in, I asked them, what do you mean by that? And they said, um, often faculty, when they visit the office, they are accused of being racist. Um, they're told that they're uh, practicing racist pedagogy, that their teaching is wrong, um, that they are wrong, that their beliefs are wrong, and it makes people feel very uncomfortable and they don't want to go to the office as a resource as it should be. And when that definition was given, I, I said, you know, I, by, by that definition, I'm definitely not woke. You know, I'm someone who tries to bring together people and um, to, to help people to identify common points so we can best serve our students. Um, so in that context, in the interview, it was said as uh, accusing people of being racist, accusing teachers of being racist constantly, um, and telling them that their pedagogy was wrong. As I started to work with my office mates, they had a different definition of woke. And to them, woke was uh, being awake to social injustice um, and taking action against it. So their definition was very positive. Um, Before I had come on, they even had workshops like how to be woke and get paid. What I discovered as we think about social justice and what is social justice was that I was coming from what I've identified now, I didn't come in with that definition, as a classical approach to social justice. Um, And my office mates and some of the key people in leadership uh, were working from what I identify as a critical social justice. And they're very different in terms of what are the outcomes that you're seeking for society, So for example, um, from a classical social justice, you would be really emphasizing things like equality of opportunity. Um, And that's very different from a critical social justice approach. They're emphasizing like, what is a just society? That's one where we have equal outcomes. One perspective is trying to manifest equal opportunity, and another is really trying to manifest equal outcomes. And what are the uh, things that can happen to all of us as a result of that, to our society at large? Um, How does that even look? Because that's something that we would want for society. And I think the default in many spaces right now is a critical social justice approach where we're emphasizing equality of outcomes. Um, And that's going to look differently in terms of personalizing learning, standardization of learning, um, and all of these other things uh, that I've been very committed in my life um, to either promoting or standing against. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm going to read what you actually wrote in your article as the definition you said, a worldview that understands knowledge as relative and tied to unequal identity-based power dynamics that must be exposed and dismantled. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: That's as good a definition as I've come across.
0: Yes, and I would add to that, it's one that also sees racism as systemic and present in every interaction. I discovered that when our academic Senate was um, drafting up uh, a a resolution on uh, racial healing, they called it. And one of the lines in there was, we acknowledge that America is a systemically racist country and that um, uh, white supremacy, it's founded on white supremacy. And I made a suggestion in the document, and I said, well, can we add that it's founded on the principles of fairness and, and equality? And there was a backlash there. They said, absolutely not. Um, how could you challenge that we're founded on white supremacy? I said, well, not everyone believes that, you know, and myself included. I'm, I'm one of the people who's saying, you know, we're founded on fairness and equality. Whether we've lived up to that or not, we can debate. But to say that we're founded on white supremacy and that racism is everywhere and systemic, that's problematic. It's a definite worldview. So, a lot of my work at DeAnza was trying to raise awareness of these ideologies, even in the simple statements we make, you know, when we're talking about uh, making progress with each other and how do we frame that and how do we frame policy around it. Um, the words that we're using, the phrases and assertions we're making about the foundations of society are, are critical to that.
1: And you wanted to just explain to people that there are these different ways of viewing the question of social justice. And they're foundationally different, and you wanted to educate on that topic, and that alone was unacceptable.
0: Yes, that's one of many things uh, that were, that was uh, deemed unacceptable from from the start. Um, me even saying that there's many ways to do the diversity equity work, um, that different teachers use different frameworks, and that's okay. That was a no no um, to say as well. I had my tenure review committee members actually say, you're leading people to danger, you're undermining the work we've done here. Um, and then I would say, well, what, what were you expecting me to say? And they could never articulate to me you know, what I should be saying, just that I wasn't saying the right thing. It, just by asking questions or, or saying there's more than one way to think or do things. There's multiple perspectives around a topic.
1: So why is it seemingly only one way?
0: Um, well, from what I heard from my tenure review committee members, um, they had a long history at, at that particular institution of doing equity work and when, when I was, part of my foundational aspects of it was to define what even equity means um, and I was told I shouldn't be asking that question either. It should just be known, but there was no um, institutional definition and so I, I come from a sociology background and. Um, uh, Words and meanings and linguistics and so forth are so important to me um, to understand what we mean when we say a term or a word. Um, So I was doing initial work around, you know, can we define equity? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to this person or that person? And that's when um, I I was told that I shouldn't even be doing definitional work. We shouldn't be doing that. We should just be doing the work, but no one could tell me what the work was. And when I would ask them to define equity, they would show me graphics and pictures um, apples falling from trees, and they would say equity means everyone gets some. Another one was people standing on boxes, and they said it's leveling the playing field. So it was never a direct definition that was related to education or educational supports. It was all f- socially focused instead, uh, not academically focused. And I noticed that in many of the things during my time there.
1: It's almost like you were the only one that didn't know the answer.
0: Yeah, um, well, they were on the, um, of the same accord basically Um, it's an environment uh, Jan that um, it's maintained by the actors that are in it so if you are someone who is questioning right you're quickly cast out Um, so then you have everyone just saying yes and we agree now who's the person who's the architect behind that i never could discover i was really poking and and trying to find out you know why did we use certain terms Um, why were we renaming groups of whole people whole groups of people without their consent for example with these x terms on the names of racial categories um you know what when did we start to you know say that uh, this is the focus of our equity work and where did it come from was it a resolution like I'm a historian as well so I'm, I'm trying to see uh, what are the footprints that have been there what, how was this uh, collaboratively developed and I could never discover that but there was a definite unison of voice uh, we just don't do that you know a singular person would say we just don't do that here that's not how we do it and then everyone else would just kind of be quiet and say nothing to oppose it, you know? And here's Lee, the the lone questioner who's saying, but why, but where did it come from? Even that was unacceptable um, to to the people and it was tightly guarded. Like I had people who came to my office hours who made veiled threats um, after I was initially questioning and they said, you know, um, we've worked hard to advance equity here and no one's gonna get in the way of it. And I thought that was very strange. And I said, well, why? Why are they perceiving me as a threat? I'm new, you know. I've what have I done in my past, or things of that nature? But just the fact that I was a questioner was a warning sign uh, to some of the key folks. Uh, You know, of course, you can see it in hindsight when it was happening. I couldn't see that immediately.
1: You walked into this so innocently. It's kind of an amazing, um, because so this has been a, a, a kind of a centerpiece of discussion, at least from my vantage point, for a very long time, right? But you kind of walked in with this kind of—I don't know—with these innocent eyes, wanting to teach this classical version of diversity. Having been hired to do it, I might add. Again, and then was just kind of shocked by what was there. But were you just not aware that this ideology has kind of become somewhat pervasive in society? Yeah, I don't know
0: if I was so much innocent, Jan, um, as I take an inquiry-based approach uh, to everything. Um, and so I, when I come into a situation, I'm never assuming I know everything or that the knowledge I have is a reflection of the reality that's there. And so that's why I started off at DeAnza doing needs assessment conversations. Um, this was during the pandemic, and I actually ended up doing over 60 hours of needs assessment conversations, which is pretty unprecedented. Even for me, um, I don't think I would have had that much access to people if they hadn't been locked to their computers, you know, and, and not able to go anywhere or do anything. Um, but the, the The benefit of it was that I talked to faculty staff and administrators and I got to ask them what are the needs here what are the strengths what are the weaknesses what do we need to work on Um, and I was warned about this uh, idea of you know not a lot of viewpoints here and so that's why I knew that was the path I needed to take was to bring people together in dialogue to talk about what are we meaning um, when we say certain terms so that we could all get on the same page if you will and then be able to you know best serve our students uh, even if we have different perspectives we could identify some points of commonality and that was um, you know the thrust of my work initially was around that and it came out of my needs assessment conversations where people were saying you know we have this long history we're rooted in equity but no one's defined what that means or you know how how that is in practice. I wish
1: more people took that approach to things. <laughs> me too. <laughs> if I can comment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I, I welcome the comments. You know, because I think that that's we learn from each other. And if you're in an academic institution, it seems to me like that should be the primary thing that we're doing, right? Is uh, engaging colleagues who are like us and different, and uh, having access to diverse viewpoints. I, I think that's how we sharpen uh, who we are and what we stand for as individuals and as a, you know, in, as an institution as well. Um, And I think that that's foundational when when my job description was to lead a transformation around equity Social justice and multicultural education. I had to know what was there um, And what were the perspectives that were there and what were the strengths and and the needs uh, that we had? And so I was very committed, you know to uncovering that but as I started to do that some people didn't want the uncovering um, and they didn't want the clarity. Um, when I started talking about diverse scholars and understanding of race um, that was again I was told that I was leading people into danger. What I was really doing on I was sharing what I had learned because before this um, I wasn't a race scholar or anything of that nature. I didn't consider myself that I'm just an educator you know I've taught civics, social studies, English. Um, I never was uh, studying race in depth and and what does it mean to you know um, to work under race ideologies but I saw constantly the mention of race all the time in every setting and so I started to say well what you know what are some ways of viewing this and I actually discovered the work of a scholar her name is um, Dr. Sheena Mason and um, when I discovered her work that was the first time in my 40 years of teaching and learning that I ever knew that there were, was something called philosophies of race. I'd never heard of that. Um, I didn't know there were different ways to view race and racism. I wanted to share that with my colleagues and with students as well. Um, the way that she laid out the different philosophies of race and her own, um, in that it was so different from the mainstream understanding of race, I grappled with that book. I grappled with the concepts. It was things that I'd never encountered, as I mentioned. And to me, that's transformative. Like when you have been doing something your whole life, just kind of unquestioningly, and then suddenly you have these questions sparked by the scholarship of a person who's laying out, you know, these frameworks. It was wrong of me to ask questions like, when we say anti-racist, what do we mean? What philosophy or movement are we rooting ourselves in? Because there's been several waves of anti-racism, if you will. Um, and I just wanted clarity around that. And, and I was told, you know, don't don't ask that. We're committed to anti-racism. It's right there in the document. Just, you know, um, that's us as an institution. Me being told that I shouldn't cite certain authors and, you know, other things that I'd never encountered in the educational sphere. Uh, no one's ever told me to be mindful of my citations. <laughs> Usually folks are like, oh, I can use your References as a resource and go read up you know, myself. and that's usually how I structure my, my references. So someone else could trace what I've done and see like, oh, does this measure up? You know Did she make valid conclusions? Like that's how I've been taught to, to do
1: scholarship. The thing that I actually uh, really struck me as you're talking here is this um, attempt to speak about a whole group, of, one person speaking about a whole group of people as if they have the right somehow to speak for them. And That's very characteristic of critical social justice and this whole, I frankly, any aspect of this woke ideology in my experience. I want to talk about that a bit.
0: Yes, that was an, um, a way of thinking that I encountered quite often, even early on. Um, i can give you examples Um, so academic senate in higher education um, that's where the faculty comes together uh, usually by their disciplines so you would have a representative that's voted from the um, sociology department from the biology department from all the departments of learning or disciplines if you will Um, that's who usually comprises your academic senate and they make decisions about the academic institution Um, part of my tenure at de anza there was this push to make what are called racial affinity groups uh, voting members of the Academic Senate. I found that to be very odd because I didn't know what racial affinity groups had to do with academic disciplines and why they needed a separate representative to come to the academic senate and be a voting member and so I asked those very questions I said you know why are we making this change Um, and then I started to question like the structure of the racial affinity groups there um, because I noticed that there was only three Um, and there are many more if we're going to think of those tick boxes right there's many more tick boxes in the community and this is a public community college um, than just three. And so why were three groups of people only being voted, granted voting rights, or being considered for that? I asked, you know, is this legal? Um, because there's not representation. Then I was questioning, are the groups themselves representative? Because I know for a fact, um, some people choose not to involve themselves with those, with those groups. And so why are we saying that they would represent, these groups would represent the perspective, the black perspective, for example, I'll just be very frank on it. Um, The, um, they call it Latinx or Latinx perspective. Just me asking those questions, John, was considered an attack. They said I was attacking the racial affinity groups by questioning their legitimacy. Um, By questioning why they should have voting rights and and then it became this issue of everyone should be able to vote and have voting rights and then you know me pointing out that certain groups didn't even have a group (laughs) to represent them uh, that became problematic as well Um, so uh, that's one example. Also, when I first came on, we had what's called a Women, Gender, and Sexuality Center on our campus. Um, And that was part of my office of equity, social justice, and multicultural education. It's so long, but I've learned to say it. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, the coordinator for that office was saying that they were receiving complaints about um, white faculty not feeling comfortable coming to the Women, Gender, and Sexuality office. And my team and my supervising dean, um, they said, well, what are you gonna do about it? And they were like, no, we're not gonna do anything. This is how we've structured this um, office to be. It's for BIPOC, they called it, people. That means black indigenous people of color. Um, and they said, you know, we've made this center for BIPOC people and that's who should be here and that's who's welcome here and we're not going to change anything we're doing. They could tell that I was just kind of like, what, you know, this strange universe I popped in and they were like, Lee, what do you think? And I told them from my perspective, we're a public school. Anyone should be able to come into that Women, Gender, and Sexuality Center. Maybe there's a resource or a book. They want to come somewhere and feel like they're not being judged. They just want to explore things. They may want to change their, you know, major, whatever it may be. I don't think it should be by their race. It should be by, I'm curious about these three topics that this office represents. And I was shouted down and told, you know, I was attempting to whitewash the history of the office. I was told um, white people have the rest of this campus and they don't need our office too. And it was again, a fissure from the very beginning in between how I viewed being a welcoming and belonging place and how, you know, uh, the critical social justice view of being welcoming and belonging and who should be welcomed and feel like they belong.
1: So you're reminding me of this uh, uh, whitewashing and white splaining as another term. So I've heard these terms, you know of course've I've read a little bit of what does that actually mean?
0: When the terms were used against me, I had never encountered them before. So when I started, at DeAnza with my team, I just want to give people a little context, um, I did. They, I asked them did they have a, a strategy or a tool or a way of tracking agendas and their team meetings and so forth and they didn't. So after a couple of weeks of just informal meetings, um, remember I'm charged with strate- leading a strategic transformation uh, of the campus, Um, And so I said, you know, we need to have structure and we need to kind of, you know, do something different. So I made a a Google doc and I said, you know, we can use this to track agendas, maybe we can collaborate. I'm so new here, I don't know what things you normally do and where I can fit in the flow. Um, We can just contribute asynchronously so we're not, you know, loading our time up with meeting. And as I was explaining it just like that, that's when one of the staff members uh, stopped me and said, you know, stop what you're doing. Um, Right now, what you're doing is you're white-speaking and you're white-splaining and you're being a white supremacist, you're being transactional. And when they stopped me like that, everyone else on the team had these very smug looks on their faces. Like they were like, yeah, get her, you know? And it felt bad. It felt like pejorative. I said, I have not come in judging you or calling you any names. I said, please don't call me a name like that that feels very bad to me. And everyone in the Zoom room looked at me as though I was the offender for saying, please don't call me that. And you know, that feels very bad what you said. And from that moment on, it was like, every action I took, it was a confirmation. Yep, she's a white supremacist. And I didn't know what they meant um, and that they were meaning something totally different than I had ever experienced or heard of until I was going to their workshops. And I saw this graphic that they would display over and over again, it had like poison bottles. Um, and it had, like it said, white supremacy characteristics, uh, being on time, being objective, um, either or thinking, uh, all, all of these other just like characteristics and, and um, uh, features of, of a, it seemed like a personality to me. It left me very unsettled. And I'm like, how dare they call me? I'm a black woman, you know, and I'm being called a white supremacist. You know, that had never happened in my entire teaching career. And not only that, i would never seen teachers you know, calling each other names like that. i would never seen teachers doing name calling in a professional setting. You know, I don't want to make it sound like DeAnza is a unique place that's only happening here at multiple community colleges in California. It's like a system um, thing where they're upholding this white supremacy culture and the, uh, the idea of it as a, as a truth. Um, And using it to screen people out and test people and see if you fit well or not uh, based on if you are exhibiting certain characteristics or not. And these are characteristics on that are what I would tell my students to be a successful person and a scholar. You know, these are the characteristics you would you would be on time, you would be objective, you would be curious. You know, you would be all of these things um, that are qualities and traits of 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 a young scholar. That's what I call it. So to have it be something that's relegated to whiteness. um, And then what does that mean about the viewpoint of the people who are promoting this? What do they think of, quote, people of color? They're not all of those things. So that means I'm not supposed to be objective. I'm not supposed to be on time. That was the expectation of me. How disappointing.
1: So a number of our viewers might be familiar with a variant of this uh, graphic. You know, we zoomed in a little bit as we've been talking here on some of these bottles that you're describing. But at the no, not too far from where we're recording right now, the Muse- National Museum of African American History had an infographic that essentially had these exact same points, just a, a little bit of a different design that created controversy here in D.C. I think it was removed for these purposes. How how? incredibly bizarre that these things would be somehow relegated to being a supremacist position.
0: There's actual trainings um, that we send our staff to. Um, They're held by actually a private university, University of Southern California, um, and they focus on decentering whiteness. Um, My supervisor was sending me emails initially saying, I want you to go to this training, and I would look at the topic and it said, decentering whiteness throughout the system. And I'm like, what? You know, like, why would, why would someone ask me to do that? And then, as we started to get into discussions about what should we be doing or not be doing, that was used as a justification. Like, no, we shouldn't do that because that's not decentering whiteness. Uh, we don't focus on this or that because that's not decentering whiteness. Now, this was not in the job description. This is not in any written institutional mission or vision. Uh, but this is what is um, told person to person. And um, if you are not in alignment with that, that's when you must be eliminated, vanquished. You're you're not allowed to be in this space. Um, What I would love to see people do is just be transparent. If you want someone to come in, right, to do your DEI work, and you say, I want you to take a decentering whiteness approach, and you'll use the white supremacy culture characteristics to do your work, that should be out in the open. And then candidates, right, can make a decision and say, oh, that's what I do. I will go in gladly and, and do that. Um, I was told at one point that I wasn't representing the ideas. I was hired to represent with fidelity. If I had known that that was what I was supposed to do, and if it was described to me, then as a candidate, you know, of course, I, 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 I would know, like, that doesn't square well with me. Like, that's not the kind of work I do. I like to bring people together and serve our students in our community. I I take a servant leadership approach to things. Um, And so that wouldn't mesh well with me to represent a singular ideology or anything like that. But in practice, that's what's what's taking place, and not just at that college, but in many colleges and spaces. And so often, um, these things are held up, like the slide, for example, and every workshop that was led by those individuals. That slide would be present, um, and they would talk about the relevance of the slide to the workshop materials. So that's their framework that's that's being used, and and it saddens me because this is a public school, and so we should really be about the community that surrounds the school. That's how it should be, and everyone should feel represented and that they're you know included. It's like. Everybody knows what it is, but you're not allowed to talk about it. It's like Fight Club, isn't it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, I think we're similar generations, mm-hmm. so you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes,
0: nobody talks about Fight Club. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> but but why, why do you think it's
0: like that? I can only speculate. When I made the charts, for example, where I started laying out the race ideologies and and what their perspectives were, uh, that had never been done in that space before. and. One person actually told me, you're making us look bad, you're you're disparaging my worldview, they said, by putting it next to that. So I said, if your ideology or worldview can pass the muster of, of, of being compared to another, then maybe you have something there. I said, what are you afraid of to have that view out and compared to others? Do you think that it won't stand up? Um, is that what's offensive? Like, because to me, as a scholar, like that's what I teach my students to do. We make Venn diagrams. We, we compare things. We make charts. Um, comparisons part of critical thinking. And so, to tell me that your ideas should not be compared um, and should not, you know, be um, put next to the ideas of another, that's problematic. And so, that's that's what gets me labeled as not being cooperative. Um, because, and that, and that was one of the statements that was used in my termination, um, that, I, that I did not cooperate, and it, and it was wrongful of me to do that. Explain to me what exactly happened ultimately. And actually, maybe before that, I wanna run you, you
1: mentioned this uh, Board of Trustees meeting that you say like you've never seen anything like it uh, before. I wanna roll a bit of a clip to it.
2: Dr. Lee has taken positions that directly contradict her role as Faculty Director of Equity. She has repeatedly advocated to remove the language of anti-racism from institutional documents, arguing that anti-racism is harmful and divisive pedagogy ideology that prevents instructors from being able to implement diverse pedagogies and violates academic freedom. Dr. Lee refusing to do the work she was hired to do, she's actively seeking to undo the years of hard work for anti-racism that so many of us have been taken to contribute to. Dr. Lee's conduct has effectively alienated the majority of affinity groups that she was hired to collaborate with in her role as faculty director of equity. However, the impact of her actions extend beyond just affinity groups. Early on in the academic year, she sent out a statement to the entire campus via multiple listservs that that created a chilling effect on people's willingness to discuss matters directly with her and that contributes to an unsafe and hostile working environment. We are sharing these concerns with the board today because we believe that Dr. Lee's intentions to rewrite campus and district policies jeopardizes and sets back the progress the college has made in developing a racially just, inclusive, and affirming campus environment. We are concerned about the impact of Dr. Lee's ability to disrupt and co-op equity for her own personal agenda or gain, and worry that if allowed to remain in this role, she will continue to undermine the commitment to anti-racism and equity that our district has fought so hard to affirm. In fact, her words and actions have already caused irreparable damage to many relationships across the campus that needs to be affected in her role. Dr. Lee has slowed our campus progress on anti-racist initiatives and work. She has alienated affinity groups from the equity office initiatives under her leadership. She has alienated members of the campus equity office from the office itself. And she has created an unsafe environment for sharing concerns that the direction of
0: equity work under her leadership.
1: So now that we've watched this, you know. Why is it, why is this so unusual in your mind?
0: Yes, um, for me, Jan, that was such an unusual thing. Uh, I'm someone who's been in education a long time. I watch a lot of board meetings. I know it's kind of boring for many people, um, but public comment is usually used to raise public awareness about things. Um, this was an instance where you had um, multiple speakers. It was a coordinated public comment, so when each one gets three minutes, so it was 15 minutes of calling for a teacher's termination, Um, and in, in this case, my termination. And the reasons that were being given, um, they were not like clear violations of you know any kind of harassment or discrimination policy or you know things that I had done that that showed that I was professionally unfit or anything of that nature. The statements that were made, like that comment that I was elevating people who sh- groups of people who should not be elevated, um, they they made statements that I said all lives matter, which I it actually is a statement I've never made, um, and um, and and just trying to. show show that uh, for some reason I was inappropriate just in my essence of being and the activities I was doing, that I wasn't representing what I was hired to do with fidelity, another statement made during that time. Um, I'd never seen a a teacher called out um, and their termination demanded, and this was during my first year. So I, I was at De Anza for two years. This was first year in. In the spring, uh, this happened, and it was right after I did my Heritage Month um, activities, and I, I did some activities around Jewish inclusion and anti-Semitism education. Um, and so the only things that I had done were things of that nature. So for people to be saying that those things were inappropriate um, when they were collaborative efforts and community-based efforts, and you know, um, me involving staff and students and community partners and. You know, doing the work that that needed to be done based on the needs assessment conversations that, you know, people had told me this is where we need to go next.
1: Tell me a little bit about this uh, anti Semitism work that you were doing and some of the reactions to it.
0: Yes. um, Unfortunately, you know, when you're in an environment where anti Semitism is deeply entrenched, which is what I discovered uh, at that particular institution. There's a lot of resistance to doing any kind of restorative or reparative work around that. And when I first came on, uh, I connected with the Hillel of uh, Silicon Valley. And they actually came to the Equity Action Council. And they said, you know, we're very concerned about our Jewish students. Um, There's no Jewish student organization. They're kind of been pushed underground. There's been some BDS um, movements um, from the student government and that we're deeply concerned about. And our students were shouted down. And um, we noticed that you all have a standing against racism page. And would you please you know, make us statement about anti-Semitism and combating that, and that we want this to be a safe place for our Jewish students and faculty. That was the ask. As the people were speaking, um, one of the staff members was dropping in the chat things like, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Uh, Here's another resource, and they were giving resources that were to anti-Zionist organizations. If you want to learn about Jewish culture, go to this Website or that website and I found that deeply offensive took it back to the team meeting So I raised that and I said, you know I found it very offensive that when we had guest speakers from the community one of our staff members was putting in the chat Slogans and things that have nothing to do with the issue they were talking about and then directing to resources that were uh, Offensive because that's not what our presenters were talking to us about and uh, the uh, the attitude was well, you're wrong, uh, you, you are all sharing resources and we can share resources too. So I said, okay, fine, what are we gonna do about what's been asked here? And I was told we aren't gonna do anything. And I said, we're not gonna do anything? I said, they came with the evidence, you know, they showed us the statements from students and so forth. Um, they talked about what our student government has done. You don't think there's any need um, to, you know, address this or do some kind of education around it? They said, no, we are decentering whiteness and that doesn't have anything to do with what we're focused on. And I said, okay, so again, it's that decentering whiteness. I needed to come up to speed. What are they meaning? What I discovered from the ideology is that certain groups of people are at this point in time deemed white, and so they are the oppressor. And to them, Jewish people are are oppressors. They're in the oppressor category, according to their matrix of domination and oppression. Every person or individual They are part of a larger group, and that group is either a victim or an oppressor, and you are stuck in that status for your entire life. You can never move from it, you can never move beyond it. You're born as a victim or an oppressor. And this is what's being taught in our K through 12 schools directly to students now. This is what's being taught to faculty members. This is how you should view your students and tell them that they are. And um, this is how we're supposed to view our world. And to me, I had never uh, told any of my students, you're a victim or you're an, I, I don't use those terms. Um, I, I always talk about, you know, like you can accomplish anything, you can, you know, do some hard work and make your dreams happen. Um, you know, we're different, we have different cultures and so forth, but we can all work together. Like that's that's been my approach to life and, and to working with people. So to hear this kind of viewpoint and to have that promoted um, was so different and It ended up with them saying, we're not going to do anything. Not only that, but they said, we've also gotten recommendations from CARE. So that's the Council on Islamic Relations. And they said, and we didn't do those either. And I said, well, could I see those recommendations? Like I'm really genuinely there, Jan, to if if a community member has brought a recommendation, I want to see it. And like, I went away, like, is this valid or invalid? What does the rest of the community think? Should we act? They never showed me those recommendations from CARE that they supposedly had, and they were using that as a counter to why we shouldn't do Jewish uh, inclusion and anti-Semitism work. Um, so I never saw those, never got to access it, um, but I did end up making our first Arab American Heritage Month at De Anza College and our first Jewish American Heritage Month with our Heritage Month work group. I just moved on. you know. When I saw that my supervising dean and my staff were like, we're not gonna do anything, and they, and they actually didn't do anything, and they didn't support the efforts. Um, I ended up doing a Jewish Inclusion and Anti-Semitism Summit, um, bringing several guest speakers in. I just went beyond the smaller bubble to the larger community and said, who wants to work on actual inclusion and, and doing some things we've never done here before? And so that's what I did, and I found people willing. They were like, Lee, you're so refreshing. Like, this is what we've needed for so many years, and no one's had the courage to do it. And I'm like, but why? If that's what this office is for, why has no one done it? And I saw that the stranglehold that was there, um, you know, the fact that you have your your supervisor and your office mate saying we're not going to help, and they really didn't help with any of those efforts. And I, I'm a, I'm a kind of person like uh, if I need to, you know, I can be solo and, and reach broader, and that's exactly what I did, um, you know, and the, and because that's what was needed. It, it was a need that was in the community. I couldn't just you know stand idly by after hearing from the community members who came concerned you know, and saying, please help us, um, I'm there to help and I'm there to serve. And so I had a duty at that point you know, to, to move forward and I, and I did. And some pretty nasty things were said about me. I was called a dirty Zionist, right? That, that lets you know what kind of environment it was. It was an environment where, where this is our norm, this is how we behave, even though it flies in the face of just like common decency and professionalism. How
1: do you understand Zionism? I just want to very, very briefly, just so people know what we're talking about here.
0: Yes. Um, so, to me, Zionism is a support of Israel and the right of, of Israel to exist, um, and at a base level, um, and, and, and a support of Jewish people and their peoplehood and personhood and, and statehood. Um, that, that is it. In the nutshell, now I, I'm giving a very brief definition. It's yeah. much more. I mean, there's all kinds of Zionism, yeah. but in a general sense, that's—that's that's what it means to me. Um, and if, if someone has a problem with that, you know, um, I would say that that's something that we need to educate on and talk about. I think there's a misunderstanding, what I've encountered, of history uh, among many people. When we did our Jewish um, Inclusion and Anti-Semitism Education Summit, it went on for many weeks, and we had a new speaker each week. This was not publicized on the college calendar it was not pushed out to the students so that they could come and learn and, and, and basically uh, there was low participation from the actual people that really needed to be in and learning from these experts and scholars that we brought. A uh, few weeks after that there was a, um, a panel presentation this panel presentation was promoted on all the college networks on the calendar so the announcement was put out to students and the speakers that were coming they had titles like um, Anti-Israel, anti-Zionist activists, and so forth. So that's what was promoted over inclusion in anti-Semitism education. You see a differential treatment uh, of different groups and speakers, and so forth. And this is all in the context of you
1: also organizing an Arab American Awareness Month. I don't know if that was promoted or not. In the <laughs> no, um, actually,
0: none of the heritage. So I started the Heritage Month work group, and I wanted my supervising dean and my staff and everyone to be involved, they declined. So I went to the broader community and we took it to the student government. And we said, this is what we want to do, you know, um, can we get your support? And the student government said, this is wonderful. We support you. They actually made a little resolution. They said, we support the Heritage Month work group and the efforts for inclusion. We feel like this is what we need as a college to make everybody feel like they're celebrated, welcome, acknowledged. Took it to the Academic Senate and they said, Oh, yeah, no, we're not going to support that because it seems like this is part of the Jewish stuff that you're doing. And you're trying to turn our school into a religious school. And I said, Oh, hold on. I said, I'm, I'm 100% a secular person. You know, I don't identify as any of the Abrahamic faiths. You know, um, I'm just someone here to serve. And, and this was a need that was stated. I said, How could you equate Heritage Month with that? So when I say that there is an entrenched anti Semitism, Jan, I, I really mean based on actions like that. Like, we're not gonna support one thing because you've done this other thing that makes it seem like this is part of that. And we don't support that, people openly saying it. Um, So, and it's it's, it's unfortunate for the students because it makes the environment unsafe. It makes, uh, and, and I'm not talking about safe spaces and this and that, I mean, it's literally If you are a a Jewish student in that kind of space, you cannot say who you are. If you support Israel, um, if you um, are someone who's proud of your culture, you have to say no to that in order to be accepted by the dominant group here of people that are so-called progressives. Um, And if if you're not willing to sacrifice those parts, you cannot be openly who you are. That's what I mean when I say unsafe. That's a, that's a space where not everyone can be their most authentic self. And the calendars have already been deleted um, off the web. They're gone from the website. We had our 2023, 20, 24 calendars up, the multi-faith calendar, the Heritage Month calendar, uh, the Identity Recognition Days calendar. They've scrubbed them. That could have been left as a resource for students and faculty, but it's just an association. Like, anything she did must be erased. Like, it was never here. Um, and that's part of this toxic ideology. We only want one perspective shown, anything that's contrary to that, it will be deleted, it will be censored, um, It won't be promoted. It, we will pretend it never happened. We will not speak of it again.
1: So and very briefly, like what, what happened in the end with your you said you were terminated. So what what happened?
0: Yes, I received notice in March um, that I would not be going to the next phase of tenure. Um, this was again, once again a, a unanimous decision that was made the first time it was unanimous the second time it was unanimous the same supervisor overseeing the the the, uh, the process each time um, and that person's now retiring um, which is which is um, great for the universe, for the college, um, but not so great for me because, you know, they were able to make that last salvo of making sure that I was eliminated. Um, and you know, each time I, I received any kind of um, evaluation that was literally attacking me for ideological reasons, so it, w- it was never on, like, her pedagogies. It was, I disagree with what she's talking about. <laughs> um, and that shouldn't be when you have an academic freedom as a professor, um, but I saw that all of that was just writing on uh, in a contract. It didn't matter in practice. Uh, there was no academic freedom, if you are not stating the orthodox perspective.
1: Inclusion has almost become a pejorative word in my mind, because how I keep hearing about it in the DEI, in the sort of orthodox DEI way, talking about actual inclusion, which was the work that you were doing. That's another aspect of this—and this has this kind of been a theme, actually, for our discussion—that you know words are defined differently and in, in an obscure way that you can't really know unless you really dig in and find out right this this is characteristic of this of this woke ideology
0: yes and i would say there's an inversion of words, an intentional inversion uh, of, of common phrases and words and, and things that people have said and, 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 and talked about for years. So you walk in and you hear like, oh, diversity, yeah, you know, I'm on board with that. Oh, anti-racist, of course I'm against racism, you know, but it, that's not what's being meant. It's not meaning against racism. It's actually meaning you're supporting racism and racist policies um, it, when you're working under the framework of Kendi and D'Angelo and what I call the neo-reconstructionists. Why I say that term, Jan, is because in the past, race activists and scholars and so forth have tried to reconstruct race to be a positive thing, right? An empowering thing. If you think back to the 60s, and that's not what's happening now today. The neo reconstructionism is reconstructing race in a very negative way, and it's reconstructing racism and what that means in a negative way as well. Um, when we when we talk about that racism can only be power plus privilege, that exempts some whole groups of people from racist actions. Um, and they feel very dignified, even when they're doing the most racist and terrible, demeaning and inhu- de- in, um, inhumane things to people, they said, well, that I'm OK to do that because I don't have the power, quote, um, to be in the privilege to be racist. So when we start to redefine what these terms mean in, in a different way, even than what the legal definition is, um, in practice, that becomes very a very toxic and hostile environment for not just the people that are subjected to it, but for everyone. It's diminishing all of our humanity. It's diminishing our ability to connect with one another. You know, if every interaction I have with you, I'm like, oh, what well Jan said that he's he's racist now. You know, he showed a sign to me that he's part of that white supremacy culture. Like, I'm always looking to confirm this bias that's held, that's faulty to begin with. Um, you know, and I'm always looking to confirm in any interaction, you know, oh, he didn't shake my hand, but he shook that person's hand. He's a racist. You know, I, I, if we're constantly doing that to each other, how can we ever connect and and make this world a wonderful place that we all want our future generations and each other to be in. It's like we, we've taken this to the extreme um, and, and, and made this a, what used to be like a very esoteric, uh, maybe just with certain professors, it's, it's gone into the broader society. And it never should have done that. And now we have to figure out how do we reel back from this and how do we move forward together in a way that helps us to heal because we've done so much damage with embracing this uncritically.
1: So what is DeAnza saying about you know, your termination as you describe it?
0: Thankfully, I'm really thankful, Jan. So many members of the community have written to the Board of Trustees on my behalf. Even other colleagues have written to the Board of Trustees saying, you know, something's happened here. It's, it's not quite right. We want an investigation. Can you, you know, figure out what's, what's taking place? You know, Dr. Lee shouldn't be losing her job uh, over these topics or for the reasons that are being given. Um, and uh, so far they've, they've just really dug in um, and refused to, to be moved uh, by any of the things I presented. So each time I would get a negative evaluation, for example, that was based on purely ideology, ideological reasons, I would submit rebuttals and supports of my participant evaluations. And when you look at the two, like what the participants said about the workshop and what the evaluator said, it was like they were at two different Things often. And not only that, all of my workshops that were observed were recorded. So I would urge the board, like, please look at the recording and see, you know, you'll see that it didn't happen that way. Um, But they've declined to do anything objective or facts based has been completely cast out and and there's no concern of it. Um, No one's looked at it. If you remember, um, one of the things that was stated in the in, in this position from DeAnza that's been publicized, which is so embarrassing for me and humiliating as a teacher, um, that I was not cooperative and not uh, collaborative and that there was no um, hopes that I could ever recover from such a deficit. The majority of teachers and faculty and staff are decent people. They've just been so afraid of the intimidation Of the silencing of the casting out I even had people who said Lee you know one person who did this before they're gone like we don't want you to be gone we love your approach and some of them would say Lee just be quiet be quiet until you get your tenure and I'm like you want me to like not ask a question for four years and then I'm gonna pop out and go like hi it's me I have questions it'll be too late you know some of the changes that were happening were transformative in, the, in and of themselves. The voting members of racial affinity groups and so forth that I mentioned earlier, like those are things that can't be changed. I guess it could if you'd make a new amendment, right? But they've changed actual bylaws and so forth. Um, so these changes are happening rapidly. The individuals that are part of these groups, they're seizing the moment, if you will, and they really are. And so I, I had a lot of warnings about it and now I am unfortunately a poster child of it and that's not the poster child I wanted to be. Um, now it's said look what even happened to Lee <laughs> you know um, and and I'll be used as an example um, for the people who want to keep a tight hold on on things there um, and make sure that the you know this this type of thing never happens again. I was an outsider who was hired in so we didn't touch on that at the beginning um, but there was an internal candidate who felt entitled to my position And this is how this all kind of started. Um, They were a former student And and some of the members of my initial tenure committee were their mentor. And what I say now to friends and so forth is that this person embodied the fruits of their labor. Because that was the person who called me the white speaker, the white Um, At the beginning, they told me, you know, this position was supposed to be mine. I don't know why they selected you. I was a student here. You don't, you know, belong here. I don't know who you are, and you're going to have a rough ride. And then Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism stopped, came in and they said, hey, something's off here, you know, you guys might want to take a a second look, we see some irregularities, Um, our legal team is, you know, prepared to defend and so forth. And so they pulled back from the first year when they were trying to terminate me first year in, and then I served this second year, and it was again, the icing out, the shunning, the silencing. Um, this whole year has, has been that from all quarters you know because it was like a message was sent out like don't speak to her don't respond to her emails so it's like you're in an echo chamber in a bit um, and in my solace was the broader community majority of the faculty and the people who would come to me you know on one-to-one and say like Lee I support you I see what they're doing it's so wrong I'm sad that they're acting this way like and these are people who are tenured who've been there for many years and they would rely on me and like I call it the whisper channel and saying like I can't ask this because I don't want to deal with the headache but I know you'll ask Lee so could you ask the question I say sure I mean I'm asked a question you know it's okay for us to question right and they were like no it really isn't you know and and so that. one point Jan in my tenure review meeting in in this this year I said I'm committed to be here I'm a product of California community colleges I was a dual enrollment student I went to community college when I was in middle school and high school and I took so many credits that I graduated two years early I said this is my life coming full circle so I plan to retire from here I said I am not going to leave I said some people have been very mean and they've been very rude. They've been self-righteous and just nasty. I said, but I have friends here who counterbalance that for me. I have people who've never engaged with my office who are coming out to workshops, who are getting involved. I said, I'm not going to be pushed out I'm not going to just resign. I said, you're going to have to do something different, and they did, they did something different. I mean, that was a conversation had with the tenure review community. That kind of conversation shouldn't be taking place, but that was the environment that was created. And I said, I think a message of this needs to be, we can't just cancel each other. We can't just tell each other, like, I don't like what you said, so we're not going to work together. Um, I think you may have this perspective, so I want to destroy your career and your livelihood. I said, we can't treat each other that way. And I said, I took this position knowing it's a DEI position. So I've worked with and through adversity. I'm okay with that. It will take time for us to build trust and relation with each other, but I'm committed to that work. They they didn't come around. Instead, it was, you know, you know, she's for sure out, you know, unanimous um, decision to, 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 to make sure that I couldn't advance further. That's what that situation uh, was. But I'm someone who's I'm very resilient and resourceful. I'm going to find the good, elevate the good. We are good, you know, um, and there's goodness still here, even in the darkest place. Like, that's just how I was raised and how I've walked through the world. And I'm thankful for that because You could become very jaded in this kind of thing, you know, and become like a hardened person and I'm gonna fight them like they fought me and be their way. Like, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to succumb to that kind of pressure. You can still be a decent person, a loving person, a kind person. Keep being yourself even if the people around you and the context around you is something different. And I do that by staying grounded Um, by reaching out to broader community. Um, One of the orgs I'm with is called uh, Free Black Thought. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um,
1: I'll I'll jump in. I'm incredibly familiar with Ah. Free Black Thought, okay? (laughs) And um, I didn't even fully realize that you were with them until just basically the last few days in some way. And it's been inc- incredibly helpful to me as an organization for understanding a lot of the issues of the day. So I'll just put in that plug. Thank you, whoever's on the other side. I'll say to the camera, thank you, whoever's on the other side of the Free Black Thought, uh, social media accounts, and the journal, of course. Anyway, please please continue. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. that
0: was one of the uh, organizations that I found um, as I was experiencing all of these things, the shunning, the silencing, the ostracization that was taking place I- at Deanza. Anza. Um, I found, of course, Dr. Sheena Mason's work through Free Black Thought as well um, and then connected with her. And I actually brought her to Deanza uh, for a in-person workshop at the beginning of this fall. You know, Jan, I've been asked, why did you stay? And the reason why is because when you're doing this kind of work, small changes are great changes. Like the small change of someone who had never come to the equity office now getting engaged after being on, on staff for decades, to me, that's showing that's a change that's taking place. It's small. It's one person, right? Then there was another person. Then they would bring another person. That's how you affect a change. So, and I knew that, you know, and and of course my committee members knew that as well. And that's what enraged them so much. (laughs) Because they're like, you're making the change that we don't want to make. We want to keep the divisions. We want to keep the victim oppressor. We want to keep saying that America is founded on white supremacy and um, that racism is everywhere. And I was bringing perspectives that were saying, well, there's another way to view that, you know? And I would say, not all of us here believe what you're saying. You know, can we make a space where we can all feel free to talk? Um, I don't want to talk about how I'm a victim and I'm oppressed and I should feel guilty and we need to make reparations and all of these other things, you know, that the grievance-based aspect of, of things. That's, that's not what most people want to focus on. But that's what we're being made to focus on because there's a small minority who's very loud and intimidating and they're bullies. And it makes everyone else cower and go, oh, you know, I don't want to be labeled. If I say something, then they're going to tell me I'm on the other side and, you know, I'm on the wrong side and I shouldn't be here. And of course I want to be here, right? This is my community. So if it was up to me, I wish like a, a judge or someone could come down and say, restore her position. This person was just getting started. We're not going to let people bully each other out of positions as a community college. Multiple perspectives should be here. It's okay for people to be different um, and let her do the work she was just getting laying the groundwork for. It. It's really just groundwork. I hadn't even gotten started. Imagine if, you know, um, we, we might just uh, be transforming California uh, if it was given the opportunity. And I just wonder to myself, how many other times has this happened? You know, how many other people never even got to... Raise a hand and ask a question because someone saw their face look like this and they said, get, get her out of here, you know, make their evals disappear, you know, that, that's what's happening is a subversion of a whole system to advance this ideology that's so toxic for so many of us.
1: It's a powerful plea you're making here, and I find myself moved by what you're saying. It's very much the spirit of, in which I view the world, yet you're out of a job. What's next for you here?
0: You know, um, Jan, when I made this decision to go public, if you will, I conferred with my mentors first. And they told me, they said, Lee, if you talk about this, you will not get another tenure track position in California. Like they were like, you would have to move states, you're done. And I had to weigh that because I have a family, you know, I, I have all of these things that I'm working on career wise. Um, and the tenure track that's why I got my doctorate you know I became a a doctorate of education so I could be a professor and you know be in the academic freedom world and support people this was an ideological skimming uh, um, um, uh, a quartering of me and they're holding me up as an example of why you will comply with us and you won't ask questions. That wasn't something that felt right to me in this moment in history. I feel like too many of us were just quietly resigning, going along, going with the flow, wanting to keep our our, our benefits and our checks coming. We live paycheck to paycheck, you know, um, we don't want to. Make that, you know, a a concern for our family or for us. Um, So we just go along with it. And and I've even had teachers tell tell me, I don't go to Academic Senate. I don't go to your office. I teach my students. I don't get involved with any of this other stuff. I close my door and I teach. And that's what so many of us are doing right now. We're just closing our door and we're making that small impact with our students right but the broader system is just being destroyed and dismantled right before our eyes and we're complicit in that because we're not saying anything we're not raising a question we're not raising an objection we're just doing our small little thing in our classroom and then the world around us is literally being lit a fire and i realized the urgency of it and i said i'm going to speak i'm going to speak about what's happened and I'm gonna have the courage to do that so that others do it. Now, what is the consequence? I have lost my job, my livelihood. I've lost the tenure track two years that I've put in. Um, I've lost my health insurance. I've lost everything, basically, and that's tough. But what I've gained is so many people coming and saying, Thank you for having the courage. Thank you for raising the issue. Um, They've said, you inspired me to ask about my equity policy. You inspired me to go into my child's school and to ask to see that curriculum and to make a Public Records Act request if needed, if people aren't um, being forthcoming with the information I'm seeking. Um, You've inspired me to push back when I wasn't going to and I hadn't in the past. And to me, that's worth everything. Because that's what it's going to take to take our nation back. So um, I just want to say that inspiring each other, we have to start to ask the questions and we have to make the time. And what I hear, Jan, is a lot of talk about dismantling, destroying, tearing down systems. What no one's been able to articulate to me yet is what comes after that. And from what I've experienced and what I've seen, what comes after that is not going to be something that all of us will want for ourselves or for our future. It's going to be something that is authoritarian, totalitarian, and that is the reverse of everything that we've built. This is an imperfect experiment. It is an experiment, a grand experiment, and it's a worthwhile experiment. It's something that's worth advocating for. It's worth protecting. It's worth taking the time to go find out what's happening in your local public school or private school and what's being told to those students and the faculty and the staff there and so much has been seized upon in this moment. You know, uh, people call it the racial reckoning and we're gonna right the wrongs of the past. Maybe we've gone too far, too uncritically. And now it's time to bring us back to where we can talk to each other. The civil discourse has almost disappeared. So we need to get together and talk. We need to have different perspectives available in a learning environment for our students and for their well-being. If you have one perspective and one lens to view everything through, that is the definition to me of indoctrination. When we no longer have critical thinking and multiple perspectives available for people to make their own educated decisions, that's problematic. That goes against all of the democratic principles and republic principles that we have that are supposed to be guiding us, that, that as a public school educator, you take an oath to protect the constitution That should be real, and that should be front and center in everything that we do.
1: What a powerful message. So how can people reach you?
0: Yes. um, So I do serve as a a board member for Free Black Thought. Uh, That's one place you'll always uh, be able to find me. Um, I do have a website. uh, It's drtlee.com. It's just my little personal website that I've always had. Not much up there, um, but I do um, consulting as well. Um, and as, as as you kind of touched on before, there's been a lot of people coming to me now um, and saying like, we're interested in your perspective. How would we do this at our school? Um, what resources could we use and so forth? I've got to meet so many amazing people um, who are doing things in the DEI uh, world that are not of this default stuff. So they're not talking about racism being systemic. They're not talking about victims and oppressors. They're talking about human dignity, free will agency. How do we join together as communities? Um, And there's many people doing the work, but they're not mainstream. So you don't see them promoted. They're not part of the multi-billion dollar DEI industry. You know, they're kind of on the fringes. Um, And that's something that free black thought elevates. They elevate heterodox thinkers um, because when we're talking about victims and oppressors and we're going to make changes towards equity and equal outcomes. What you don't see is a piece of measurement and accountability to go along with that. And if you're not having measurement and accountability and evaluation of some sort, then what are you doing um, you know, with all of the public funding that's going in to fuel these efforts? How, how does the public know what's happening with that funding? And I think that that's something that people need to start looking into and asking questions more about and using Public Record Act and other mechanisms that we still have, thankfully, um, to, to, to ask for that accountability if it's not forthcoming.
1: So as we finish up, what would be your suggestions to people, parents, teachers, frankly, anybody who's concerned about you know, these realities in our whole social structure today?
0: Um, I would strongly encourage people, Jan, to keep asking questions, even if you're the only person in the room raising a hand because often when we're hearing these words, racial equity, diversity, um, inclusion, right, many of us have questions about that. But we're in environments where uh, sometimes some of the people act like no one should be questioning it and we should all be on the same page. What I've learned is that there are many lenses to view these topics through. There's not just one. And so often in so many settings, it's almost like there's a default um, um, explanation or understanding of things and that no one questions it because it's repeated so often that we all just say, oh, OK, I've, I've heard that before. I'll just go along with it. No one else is questioning it. If someone tries to tell you that you shouldn't be questioning, then that's your um, key or indicator, right, that you're on the right path. Because only in settings that are authoritarian where there isn't freedom of expression can you not ask a question. That's how we learn through dialogue in communication with each other. So much of what we see in our world around us right now is one way. And then we all say, okay, right, that's the perspective. Um, this is what the expert has said. But experts are um, not perfect or infallible. They are human beings as well, um, and I, and I hear a lot of people talking about, cultural humility. What I would really love to see us embrace in our um, academic, civic worlds and everywhere else is intellectual humility. This idea that not one of us has all of the answers. We're all exploring and trying to figure out together. No one has the magic solution, the magic bullet, the magic framework, um, and, and, and we all need to get back to the magic of learning from one another And being in community and dialogue with one another being able to Disagree with someone but still work with that person. I don't know what happened with that But it seems like nowadays if I disagree with you It's like I want to cancel you and you know, you shouldn't exist here or anywhere else and That's so toxic. So I'd like to see us get back to more compassion based um, more communication based more dialogue based interaction and more of an inquiry based approach And what are some possibilities we haven't even seen yet? Um, What are some ways that are out there that are being suppressed because we're being told there's one way? And that's what I would like to see uh, more of, an encouragement of multiple perspectives, of critical thinking. And um, sometimes it can feel intimidating, right? Like that's the school, they're the authority. I shouldn't ask them anything because they're the educators. They are there to serve you. You are the public paying, public, uh, you know, your tax dollars is what makes that institution possible. So they have a responsibility and a duty to answer your questions.
1: Well, Tabia Lee, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you. Since this interview was recorded, Dr. Lee has filed a lawsuit against Anza. We reached out to the community college, which declined to comment specifically, but said faculty members have comprehensive due process and appeal rights. Thank you all for joining Tabia Lee and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.